glad to see everybody here on a drizzly day, and especially glad to see our speaker who came through the, the Marine Corps Marathon. Oh, A couple of shopkeeping things. If people would fill out their evaluation forms at the end of the series and put them over on the shelf, that would be terrific. We're getting some great ideas. Um, there will be a brief meeting on November 14th, Saturday morning, um, with people who have an interest in taking all that we have learned and our experience and having a conversation about where we might go. Um, from here, no agenda set, but um, just want to talk about the, the uh, Dessert and Dialogue series and what ideas uh, might take us to the next step. So, um, let's see, there is material both outside the door on suicide as well as up here uh, that you are welcome to take with you, uh, and some materials from the anxiety disorder and depression classes over on this side as well. So thank you so much for attending and being a part of this series. It has meant an awful lot to me. Um, as I shared with Dr. Pearson, our daughter, when she was a senior in high school, five, or in college five years ago at Wake Forest, her roommate committed suicide. And it was a very traumatic experience for us and our family and for our daughter in particular. And then two years ago, our son's longtime girlfriend, her sister committed suicide. So we've had two close, two close experiences with suicide and the survivorship that comes after that. So it's a particularly, um, I'm very happy to have you, Dr. Pearson, here and to share your knowledge and your, uh, your time with us. Sure. So Dr. Pearson is the adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University in the Department of Mental Health. She chairs the National Institute of Mental Health Suicide Research Consortium. She's the Associate Director of Preventative Interventions. She leads staffing on the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention Research Prioritization Task Force. That's a mouthful. Um, she's assisted in the development of the Surgeon General's Call to Action to Prevent Suicide. And she worked on the first national strategy for suicide prevention, which the result is in the booklet that she has brought with us to share. So with all that, we welcome you. We're Great. glad you're here. And we'll start with just a short prayer. Sure. So this is the prayer Larry wrote uh, for the first evening that we kicked off our series. And I thought it would be appropriate to end with this prayer. Shall we pray? God of all people. We give you thanks for the gifts of medicine and technology you have given us, for the mysteries of the body and brain, and for the tremendous strides education and research have provided towards our understanding and healing you ultimately provide. We pray that you will provide individuals who struggle with mental illness the resources of the heart that await the resources of medicine to provide them with relief. Be with them in their loneliness their desperation, their despair. Be with their families and caregivers, their friends and employers, the physicians and nurses and pharmacists who seek to treat them. Save them from those moments, planned or impulsive, that lead them to do violence to themselves or others. Provide us as a society with the right balance between law and freedom, legislation and morality, medical care and independence that lead them to find relief from that which holds them back. Save them from the stigmatization and from us from stigmatizing. Bless all who labor in this field, particularly Dr. Pearson and Gemma Wagomer, that the seeds they sow may bear fruit a hundredfold. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Thank you for that. All right, I got a mark <coughs> already. <coughs> Thank you all for coming today and, and for being willing to learn about this very difficult topic. Um, most people know somebody who's died by suicide if they're not close to you in terms of family, you know, configuration, friends. Um, it's always a tragedy. And I'm going to walk through why 
um, we're trying to figure out more strategic ways to do this, and you'll see some of the numbers as we go forward. Um, many of you probably heard Dr. Insel, who set, um, I think, the series off. He's been a, a very strong advocate. We're sad he's leaving, but we're hoping in his new job he continues to be very um, involved in this. And feel free to just shoot up your hand and ask a question as I'm rolling. Can you hear me okay in the back? Okay, here we go. So what I'll go through is why we put this book together and why we're hoping the book gets used and actually shapes action policy and what researchers do. I want to explain a little bit about how the scope of suicide in terms of not just suicide deaths, but people attempt suicide much more often than die by suicide. And of course, suicidal thoughts and what we think that all means. And I want to show you where we're, where we're making some progress and where we could go with this and then certainly have time for a lot more questions and answers. But as, as I go, please feel free to jump in. I should also say I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been working at NIMH since 1990. When I first started there, I started out in Alzheimer's disease research, um, overseeing it, not doing it myself. And that's, I still have a similar role, it's overseeing the research. But I also try to guide the research by putting out requests for information on certain topics where I think the field is ready to go. And it's always a good um, reality check to talk to people to see what I'm missing, what I'm not, and what your ideas are. So I am really interested in your reactions to some of these things. So this research prioritization task force, and I'm not going into the bigger action alliance, um, it's a larger organization that's uh, both public and private. Um, that has about 40 members that are interested from various sectors of health, criminal justice, <coughs> police, who all work on suicide prevention, and there's various task forces under this very large um, umbrella. It was started by Secretary Sebelius and Secretary Gates in 2010 to really do something about uh, the nation's problem with suicide. I was um, staffing the task force that was focused on trying to figure out the best research. And we had advocates coming to us. They would show up at NIMH saying, you know, if we were able to raise like 10 or $20 million for you, what would you do with it? What's your priority? And that always clarifies your thinking in a hurry. <laughs> somebody said, what would you do? So we said, you know, you're absolutely right. We could think of a few things, but we haven't systematically thought through the best way to spend that money. So trying to lay out this whole idea, um, you know, so that's three some years and I've got a few minutes here to go through this, so I'm not going to go through all of it. If you really want the details, it is written up in the book because we felt it was important that people understood how we got there. The goal of the task force, though, was to look at those suicide numbers. So if you see those purple lines going across the top, suicide has not gone down. Um, homicide has, and, you know, I don't want to get into the debate as to why, maybe that's, um, too restrictive sentencing, I don't know. But um, for an external cause of death, so you know, we don't talk about suicide being contagious necessarily. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but for something that's like a car accident um, or homicide, we wanna think about suicide as, a, as an external cause of death from the viewpoint of public health, because sometimes that helps us think about how to um, address the topic. So you'll see as we walk through this, um, Dr. Insel clearly felt like if the <coughs> homicide rate could go down, motor vehicle accidents could go down, why not suicide? So I just want to give you a sense across the world what suicide is like. The darker red colors on this map show the higher rates. And the U.S. is this orange color kind of in the middle in terms of ranges. Where there's white area, there's not numbers for that, although I guess Denmark kind of controls Greenland, so I guess we'd look at the Denmark numbers there, that big white piece up there. And we also know these numbers, especially in developing countries, have much to be desired. Um, many of these are estimates. China's rates have been <coughs> much higher. They're projecting them to go down, but we also know those are estimates. They don't do a full census in the same way we might. So it's just to give you a sense of um, the flavor of that. This is from um, a World Health Organization report I made a typo there, it should be 2014, which you can actually access online if you're really interested in this. But the slide shows that if you break it out by um, countries, 
So we've got the suicide rate over here, and we talk about it usually per 100,000, not a percent, but um, in the U.S. it's about 13 per 100,000. Here you're seeing some that are 90 per 100,000 in low- and middle-income countries, and the bottom part of this graph is the age group. So closer this way is the younger, towards that way are the older age groups. So for lower- and middle-income countries, it's a real issue among young people. And as you uh, look at the higher-income countries, it's a middle age and older life pattern. Um, this is really hard to read, but if you look at the green boxes, this is just looking at the, not any rates or fractions, but just absolute numbers of suicides in the U.S. And this is in 2013. The 2014 numbers should come out in about two months. This comes from the CDC. And the blue boxes across the top are um, accidents, <coughs> unintentional injuries. So if you look at the age groups going across the top, you can see for younger people, they're more likely to die of accidents than cardiovascular disease or cancer, which kind of makes sense. Uh, most people don't have, younger people don't have those illnesses. As you go further out to 65 plus, suicide um, is actually, I think, number 11 for like people 65 plus. So it starts dropping because people are dying of other things as well. But the, so the, the green boxes are suicide. You can see for the 15 up to the 34 year old groups, it's the second leading cause of death. But the numbers are you know, 5,000, 6,000. When you're talking about middle-aged people, it's 7,000, 8,000. So even though I think uh, in the news, youth suicide gets covered, it's, we all feel it's very tragic, but there's actually many more numbers of middle-aged people who die by suicide in older adults. This is a, a graph of age groups. Um, so if we focus on, let's go to that bright blue line right on the top. That's 45 to 54 year olds. And this is looking across time from 1998 up to 2013. So we've been quite concerned about this middle age group um, going up. And you might have heard some news briefs on that. The next oldest group is the 55 to 64, which is the red boxes there. And that group has been going up. Um, the gray, the age adjusted overall has gone down because the 35 to 44 year olds showed some decrement. So this is kind of an overall look. And if we actually broke this out by gender, we'd see slightly different patterns. Men are much more likely to die by suicide than women. Women are more likely to attempt suicide and survive. And part of that is um, the way they um, actually attempt. So let's see here. Missing you, you are right. This is what I got from my CDC buddy. I'll have to ask him. <laughs> I'm wondering. Healthy. Yeah, they're all healthy. There's no problem. <laughs> you guys are sharp. Wait, wait till I tell my friend Alex. Wow. Yes. How do, how do they, if they even try, separate out? Um, a suicide because of, say, mental depression and somebody intentionally taking their life because they have terminal cancer and they don't want to keep struggling? Right. So it's a great question. Um, Do they and are they? Yeah. So the way these numbers come about are from death certificates. Mm -hmm. So if you know anything about death certificates, um, it's often filled out by the funeral home director right. or if, if there's a questionable death, then the police are involved and it could take up to six months to figure out something that looks like a questionable death. And depending on where you live, that could be somebody who's got um, great um, education in terms of a pathologist as well as forensic, or it could be, if you're in a rural area, somebody who was just elected to be the coroner. And you don't have to have any special education. You so can just be elected. So softness in that determination. Absolutely. Whether it's yes. depression-based or this one, as we say it today, and look at the states, the assisted right. death Right. So that's, that's not getting right to the question. The question is more around assisted suicide and how do those get counted. So in Oregon, where it's been legal for some time, those, I believe, are considered suicides because somebody did it by their own hand. Uh, but there's so few of them, and it actually hasn't changed the rate. And Oregon has a lot of filters to allow this. Um, but there have been other instances like the World Trade Center where people were jumping 
and those are not counted as suicides. So there is some you know, discretion in terms of kind of the bigger picture as to what's going on. There are some medical examiners and coroners who are very conservative in the sense that they don't want to say something's a suicide unless they're very sure, and some even required a note, and that's not that common always. So we know that suicide's definitely undercounted. We, we're very confident it's not overcounted. And what uh, you'll see in the document, we don't address assisted suicide, but it's a really important discussion to have and I think maybe should have a whole other session on that. Because <laughs> it's, it's very challenging. Um, yeah, well, it, the reason why people usually want to have that option is that they're very anxious about what's going to happen. So if you can think about how to address the anxiety, sometimes it's not an issue. So, well, thank you for picking this out. I'm so relieved. <laughs> Keep looking. Tell me if there's other mistakes in here. Okay, so I had mentioned I would talk about suicide deaths, attempts, and ideation. So this was from probably 2012, so the number, it's right now um, 41,000. This is 39,000 deaths. Many more hospitalizations, 129 hospitalizations. How many emergency visits? Uh, probably closer to 500,000 now. Then if you ask people on surveys, not everybody goes to care after a suicide attempt. They might sleep it off if they uh, overdosed or the, you know, something happened so they survived or they were discovered. And many don't go see care. So many, many more suicide attempts. And then ideation is uh, very high and unfortunately common. So we want to think about how to talk about that. With the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is a survey that the CDC runs anonymously in high schools, and it's often used by states to get a sense of what uh, youth risk behaviors are happening. If you look to the far right on here, there's a question about, did you have a suicide attempt that you actually needed to see the doctor about? Then, um, so that's the smallest number, around 2% high school youth reporting this. And this is like grades 9 to 12. Then attempted suicide, again, this is more because it's not the, all the kids who went to get help. It's adding others who may have, however they describe this. And this gets interesting with youth because you could see adolescents who'd say, well, I took five Tylenol and I thought that was going to do it. And you can have other kids who'll take 20 and say, I just wanted to sleep really good. You know, and to make some of these decisions about what's a real attempt, what was their intent, and um, adolescents are pretty good at saying after the attempt, oh, that, that's not what I was really doing. Um, just send me home. I don't want to talk about it. So s some of the characterization around this is a challenge. Um, many more people will describe making a plan but probably not following through with it. And the seriously considering suicide, you know, is over 20%. So you can almost say, whoa, is that almost normative for some kids? You know, one in four in every classroom. Then again, um, if you think about some of the literature that's common in high school, middle school, you know, Romeo and Juliet, there's a lot of literature focused on this. There's plenty of media. You know, how kids answer this question, we're not sure, but it's been very steady. This has been very constant um, over the years. So this is getting back to, so that's sort of the burden of suicide when we think about it. There's people who are dying, they attempt, and the people who are thinking about it are probably needing help too. So we describe that as the burden of suicide. So this task force co-chaired by um, Dr. Insel and then um, Mr. Setow here, Phil Setow from the Jed Foundation, lost his son to suicide when he was in college. And the Jed Foundation is a, a great resource for um, college suicide prevention, if you haven't looked at it. Um, and he's also um, comes from the pharmaceutical area, kind of an entrepreneur, but a real tough businessman. So as we were going through this whole thing, he's like, I want to have this strategy very accountable. I want people to know exactly why we said what we're going to do. It makes sense. So that's also why the book is so thick, because he wanted all of our logic laid out, because um, he felt like this was a big opportunity to kind of turn things. So um, I talked to him once a week, every Tuesday morning for three years to make sure we got this right. So um, this was our process, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but there's a science to setting priorities in research. So I just want to let you know that we try to think through all the uh, ways about it. 
we contacted colleagues in Canada, Australia, and said, you know, what are you guys doing? What, would, what do you wish you had done? What have you learned? So a big part of this was to get stakeholder input. So this was a, a survey with 700 people asking them, what kind of research do you think we should do that will actually bring the suicides down? And that was one of the things Dr. Insel felt very strong about, as, as well as um, Phil Satow. We could do a lot of research that's interesting, but we have to do some research that changes these numbers. So a lot of this, um, in the field, people were very aware that if you'd attempted suicide once, you were still at risk for suicide. So actually finding those people and helping them could probably change the numbers. So a lot of the focus was on that. But we also have a lot of people interested in um, trying to do interventions with young people to build resilience so they never feel like this in the first place. And of course, that would be our big goal. So to think about how to do this, these numbers are quite small, but we call this our bubble diagram. So we were trying to think about who had died by suicide and where they were or what means of suicide they used uh, when they died. And this was a little bit of taking a lesson from like HIV, where do you find people with HIV? Where, you, where do you need to make you know, those numbers? So there's nothing um, in the US that says you have to be a part of a registry if you attempt suicide, where if you do um, test positive for HIV, somebody's tracking this. So we did our best to figure out, okay, let's look at back in time, somebody's died by suicide, where were they? Were they in healthcare? Were they in the military? Were they in jails or prisons? Where are they? Maybe we should focus that way because those, those are people we should be able to access. We should be able to identify them. So we had nobody in the field that actually done it this way. And we thought, well, let's just try this out, see how the numbers work out. So I'm sure you'd heard a lot about military suicides. It's, it was covered in the news. The um, Department of the Army would run their numbers every month. So we heard about it, whether we wanted to or not. It was in the press. There were th about 300 suicides in a year there. But when we went to jails and prisons, we found there's five to 600, like twice as many. And guess what? We know where those people are. <laughs> it's not like we have to go find them. Um, in terms of military veterans, we knew those numbers were high. We're actually still trying to figure out those numbers well because the Veterans Administration only serves about 20% of all vets because you have to be means tested and opt into those. So there's a lot of veterans in the community that we need to do a better job with. And then we started looking at um, who had accessed health care, and in particular, these are not separate. You could be a veteran who was seen in the emergency department, which is part of health care, and you could have used a firearm. So some of these could be overlapping. But we separated them out saying, here's all the opportunities we could see if we did a better job, maybe we'd reach more people. So for emergency departments, we knew there were a lot of people who did seek help for um, a suicide attempt. And we said, if we could help them better, we could maybe make a difference. And the literature had been growing on how to help people. There had been a number of trials helping people who attempted. And then I mentioned, you know, doctors, or Mr. Satow's um, interest, full-time college students, we could, that's sort of like a, a boundary population, we called them. Schools, if they wanted to, could be more responsible. Churches could be more responsible. A place where you could kind of define a group and say, what are we doing within this setting to do a better job? Probation, um, people with mental health problems clearly are more at risk, but we'll, um, you know, 99% of them don't die by suicide. So what is it about uh, people who can make it through that and people who can't? So we really have to get a better sense of that. And we ran the numbers because we said, you know, to reduce suicides by 20%, which was that task force goal, could we get there? So we just ran some numbers and said this would be optimal. If we were able to treat everybody coming through the emergency room, how could we do this? Because 51% of the suicides in the U.S. are by firearms, if we just decrease that by 25%, we're almost halfway there. So that's a tough discussion, and we can talk more about that. <coughs> we got some ideas about how to move ahead. What surprised us was the carbon monoxide poisoning. You know, with catalytic converters, um, cars' exhaust is less poisonous, but unfortunately, it still is poisonous. So if you had an automatic shutoff in a car, 
you know, would that save some lives? And the means access is always an interesting discussion because people will say, well, you know, if they, they don't succeed, we don't like to use that word, if they don't die by suicide by that method, won't they just go try something else? And usually if somebody's thwarted from that or there's time in between where they're thinking of it and what the means they're going to use, they have a much better chance of surviving, just buying time. And many people who attempt suicide don't attempt again, even though it's a risk factor. So it's from a public health perspective, you want to build in safety in the environment to make it easy so people don't have to take actions. So we can get back to that in the discussion if you'd like. And then this other piece was the emergency care, helping people never attempt again and survive. So this is a lot of writing, but what we did was organize all these ideas that we got off the survey by some key research areas. So the kind of the why, you know, what's the etiology, why do people become suicide? If we knew a little bit more about why, maybe we could do a better job in uh, detecting. What are our interventions? What's going on in the service system? Because we also know people who've been discharged from uh, emergency care don't always get to the follow-up care they need. So we know that's a risk time. Um, we also tried to think about interventions in the community that were not health-related. And then from Dr. Insel's experience with autism, we knew we could do our research better and more efficient. So we wanted to start changing that too because for every dollar we spent, we want to make sure we get our money's worth out of it. So I can talk about that later if you have any questions there. So let's just go into question one, um, why do people become suicidal? So these are some of the areas we thought about. The clinical factors would be more of the psychiatric, you know, psychological issues. What are we learning about sort of the neurocognition around that? You know, and are there any biomarkers, are there genetics, or even changes um, in proteins or how the um, body works? So if you're starting out on a disease problem, you kind of go to epidemiology first, like what's the layout in the land? So this is a, a map by county of suicide rates. And it goes from 20, uh, 2004 to 2010, because some counties have very low numbers, so you kind of put all those numbers together across those years. So what do you notice first? The west, yeah, especially the mountain west and Alaska. So what would your ideas be? Looking at that, very isolated. Isolated guns. And the weather. Weather. To extreme. Anything else? So I didn't go back to that um, world map, but there's been a lot of research in Scandinavia, you know, where the extremes are there. Doesn't seem to be so much that as alcohol. That's <laughs> a problem up in some of the Scandinavian countries, and they've actually reduced their rates by upping their uh, alcohol tax. In this case, we, it, you know, you could, it's sort of a, you can get a lot of ideas out of this. But what's interesting is, uh, you know, if you look at where in the east there's high rates. Yeah, it's Appalachia, it's some of the higher poverty areas. So we do know uh, financial stress is part of the picture, but not the whole picture. And that's always the challenge in suicide. It's multiple factors. Um, economists will say there's um, kind of a do it your you solve your own problem kind of approach in terms of attitude. And sociologists will look at this and say these states are more likely to have less welfare, less of the state taking care of you, less of a safety net. And people who like that move there. So it's even more of not just the state legislature, but they've moved there to be in that situation. It's also a matter of who survives an attempt. Um, so I'm like up from by Baltimore, and I remember, I think it was in the 90s, the, a lot of many more uh, homicide attempts or shootings. And there was sort of this contest between D.C. and Baltimore. <laughs> and Baltimore was starting to look better because they had shock trauma. People were, there were more gunshots, but they were surviving. So the numbers shift depending on if you survive. If you were stuck in an ambulance in D.C., you were in trouble because you weren't going to get to the hospital in time. So even though there were more shootings in Baltimore, the numbers were worse in D.C. because people weren't surviving. So part of this can be lack of access. I think somebody said, you know, rural, there are not that many trauma centers. And depending on the means you use, that could be part of it. But, you know, people start with this kind of map saying, okay, what do you think is going on kind of as a social trend or what's happening? 
Um, we had reporters contacting us as the, uh, you know, the financial strain of the um, housing, you know, burst. What am I trying to say? The market burst, right? Depression, recession, whatever you want to call it. And they were starting to look at numbers within states, wondering, you know, there were unfortunately some very kind of high-profile news coverage of people who were going to foreclosure, being evicted, and then killing themselves. So the CDC folks actually went to the numbers where we had some data um, within some states and found that, indeed, as this happens, there were some that were immediately preceded by foreclosures, but maybe not as many as we'd expect if that was the problem. Um, but it's clearly something we have to think about. And if we were thinking about prevention, you know, who should we be being, um, who should we engage in a conversation here? You know, banks, um, civil law, you know, should landlords know about this? When I was in graduate school at Michigan State, there was a lot of interest in um, helping people in unemployment offices, especially with depression, because as you're trying to seek employment, you really have to stick with it. And it's very discouraging if you're going after this month by month. You know, is there something we could have learned from that to bring forward here? And I mentioned uh, the contagion a little bit. We don't always think about suicide as being contagious. But for younger people and media coverage, there is something. We, we, we've established this. And actually, it was done as early as in the 1700s. Um, the Werther effect was actually coined because of Goethe's Goethe's novel. And actually, there were a lot of young people wearing that same outfit, too. It was such a copycat thing. And people said there was probably an excess of 2,000 suicides just because of this book and how popular it was. So we always get worried about this as media coverage happens. But we're also thinking about how media and social um, you know, connections can actually help and prevent suicide. That doesn't always hit the news because you know, that's not as interesting because it's good news. <laughs> so we haven't studied that as much and we'd like to study that more. And you know, as you know with young people, we just have to be there and figure out what we're doing to help. So the social network part is very important. Um, we know that the social network piece, if you have a work colleague who's died by suicide, it might be just part of the empathy process that you're trying to figure out why would somebody do this. You start thinking as part of your uh, empathizing, well, I could kind of see how that could happen. But you, that sometimes moves you a little bit closer to, I guess I could see how I could do that. And it's very difficult to try to stop the empathy <laughs> by also saying, we, we're glad you're understanding this, but we don't want you to consider that as a choice. We want you to think about some other alternatives. And that's very challenging with young people, too, because they want to be empathetic and understand their peers and why this happened. So whenever you have an event after a suicide, it's very important to be respectful of the kids who want to be thoughtful, sympathetic, and want to have a memorial for the person who is lost, but at the same time not idealize it and also have this message that is really important uh, if you're thinking about this to do something about it. We mentioned the financial stress. There's some literature on people who've had uh, child abuse and neglect early in their life course where bio biologically you start changing just because you don't have a secure, um, kind of expectable, supportive uh, environment. It's a question in the back. I'm sorry, I wanted to, to go back. I was, I was curious in this social, you were describing this sort of social network, I'm, I'm wondering if it sometimes goes the other way, too. Where it, absolutely. Have, bullying. If you have somebody who's, I mean, this, this Oh, you're saying I would like, never do I, that I because of that. I who took his life a few years ago. And I see. It, it happened to be I was battling depression, too, and it actually flipped me to a better place. So. Um, yes. There are some, I this is a great place to talk about that because that's a good alternative to know. Like, I could go do something about this. Some people would say, oh, this is so bad, it's never going to get better. And you could think about that a lot of different illnesses. Oh, I've got diabetes. You know, here we go. This is really going to be bad, and then eventually I'm going to have all these problems. Or I can do something about this. So it's, it's, um, it's really important to let people know in that sort of sympathy circle, if you want to say, and you know what? You can do something about this. Um, it, so 
So this is why it's such a challenge, I think, to talk in groups and social settings. Yes. Have they run analyses of depression and suicide events? Because one of our former lectures was on anxiety yes. and depression. I think a lot of us, when we've had friends, children, others in depression, that's one of our greatest fears. Right. They're in such dark places. What are those numbers? Right. Like? So a prelude. Can you repeat the question? Sure. The question was um, because when many of you know people with depression who had depression before suicide what are the statistics what's the likelihood i think of dying by suicide if you have depression um initially we thought it was quite high but as we a uh, little bit more research to follow people through if you can get through managing your depression you get some kind of treatment you could say okay this might not go away completely or i'm pretty good i just have a few episodes you're likely to survive if you can't get through that initial important first treatment, your risk is higher. And if you're ever hospitalized for it, your risk is higher. And some people feel like just going to the hospital sometimes might not be so helpful. We actually want to improve our research um, there because we think there's better things that could happen in the hospital to give you a more positive perspective instead of, we don't know what to do with you and we're putting you in the hospital. <laughs> just underscores their self Exactly. We want to make sure that clinicians are much more um, optimistic on what can happen. So the, I'm, I haven't answered your question yet. So it ranges from 2 to 5%. So it's actually pretty small. The numbers used to be quite high because when we first looked at it, we were just following people for 5 or 10 years. But if you survived that, you actually survived a long time. So then the numbers look lower. Same thing happens with schizophrenia. If you can treat people earlier, their uh, likelihood of surviving is much better. Yes? Um, I just have a question. You're talking about treatment. And I know for at least our family and our health coverage, it's like a full-time job trying to find the right treatment. And that's even having health coverage. Absolutely. Um, and it's just a really, it's a struggle. Yes. So I, I don't know where, where your research kind of fits we're working on that right now because it, there, it shouldn't be that way. If you had cardiovascular disease, it's still a job to find the right doctor, but it's not as much work as it is trying to find adequate mental health care. Yes? Yep. There are people who will never show up on your statistics. I, I know someone who had an obscure uh, deteriorating nervous disease. He contacted the Hemlock Society. Uh, he didn't want his family to know, so two people showed up and sat with them and right. passed away. Yeah. Like I said, I think we should have another session on that. <laughs> we, we had a workshop at NIH about this, and it was really interesting. Uh, a lot of people in end-of-life care have some really interesting ideas about this. And I think sometimes if you feel like you can give some people some options, not just Hemlock Society, but some others, it can kind of change the conversation. And I think there's a lot of us, sorry, who are younger who think about the situations and go, I would never want to live that way. But it's always a gradual process. So the number of people who want to end their lives like that is actually a small number. Most people are fine with the process going on as it is with less, you know, expensive intervention in the hospital, but at least hospice and palliative care, you know, as people are understanding it better and using it, um, is, is much better. So let's get back to some of the psychiatric issues since a number of you questions around this. The other area we haven't really looked at was physical pain and that might have been this person you're thinking of in terms of how difficult this is and insomnia. We've learned this from the military and veterans knowing that's a huge issue and maybe if we reduced some of those problems we would be um, making better headway. So Dr. Ince will probably talk to you about you know where we're trying to push things beyond understanding mental illness as just whatever somebody could tell us. So if you thought about cardiovascular disease and we were all relying on your self-report of your blood pressure, what do you think your blood pressure is today? You know, that's kind of sad. So we have to have better measures of how we're going to get there to understand, you know, mental illness, what's going on. This is just a model of how somebody's trying to put the biology with the social stuff. I'll just keep going here because you guys have a lot more questions. The other piece that I wanted to mention, though, which I think has a role for the church and religious organizations, is how you get community around people, because we know that can be protective. We know from a lot of the longitudinal surveys that kids who feel attached to their families, schools, some type of organization, 
make it through. Um, so that's really important. We can go back to some of these things. I wanted to get to some of the earlier intervention stuff because I know you would mentioned this. Um, there's a part of psychiatry and uh, actually a prevention science area where people work to look at the benefits of early intervention, kind of like a head start. You know, what's the benefits long run? If you could deal with kids' um, disruptive behavior early on and get them on a better course, what are the benefits? And economists actually like this because they can model all kinds of benefits. No jail, if you're working, you're a taxpayer, you know. <laughs> these are the things that you might hear all these great projections about. Well, there's researchers who actually follow kids, and this cohort of kids in first grade um, is followed now into their 40s. Um, this was uh, a group at Hopkins where they were focusing on um, kids in the classroom who were aggressive, and I don't know who's a teacher in here, but you get all this great um, understanding of how maybe kids read and learn math, but you don't get a lot in behavior management. And if you were ever in one of those classes with the kid acting up all the time and the teacher has to spend all the time dealing with the kid acting up, you know, there's consequences for achievement too. So there was this effort to improve kids' experience in school and get them on the right track. And it was just managing their behavior. It wasn't necessarily looking at their academic um, abilities. So the good behavior game is just like a team thing and it's actually kind of uh, in a lot of school systems now by different names. But the teacher basically gets the kids sorted out so not all the tough kids are in one group and all the great kids another, but you scatter them and you get them working as teams and they understand the goal, they get rewarded for the good stuff and they even get to go to the principal and have lunch, like that's a positive thing. <laughs> so it's really kind of turning things around to the school to positive environment. So by implementing this just in first grade up to sixth grade, the kids who started using drugs, this is in the Baltimore City Schools, were much less than the control, that red dot. It lasted that long, just getting a good start in first grade. So we knew this study was going on and we said, what if we looked at the later outcomes of suicidal thinking and attempts? So what happens is, and this is kind of, I apologize, but there were uh, males and females um, separated because sometimes the effects are more for females than males. But the, the good behavior game is this red line here where how many kids start uh, reporting thinking about suicide? Much fewer on this red line than in the classrooms that didn't have it. So here's something focused just on managing, you know, kind of self-control in the classroom that has benefits for suicide ideation. Now, that might just kind of seem like a duh. <laughs> Finding because, gee, you know, if kids are feeling better about themselves and doing better in class, yeah. Um, on a population level, though, this is really important because you could still have kids doing well in classrooms, and I'm, I'm sure we all know of cases where kids are almost so perfectionistic, they end up being suicidal when they fail in something. That's a different group than this. But from a population perspective, if you had more kids doing better in school, we are thinking the suicide rate would probably be lower. There's other things from public health where we know there's related risk factors, so people who smoke and drink alcohol are just at a somewhat of an elevated risk. But if you run it across the population, you can get numbers like this. A $1 cigarette tax, and I know I'm in Virginia, um, <laughs> would save 4,000 lives if you just kind of look at the different states and their, um, their policies around tobacco. Now, I don't know if you, you know, address that Western mentality piece, too, because it could be you could have high tobacco taxes, but people who still had a lot of firearms and so on, but that's just an example. If we go to the emergency room, I mentioned this before, clinicians, you know, as frustrating as it is for you to find mental health providers, they're really frustrated, too, because they have to be making some big decisions here about who goes in the hospital, who goes home. We, we don't have really good tools to give them to say, who is more at risk than others? And this is really important for kids, you know, where people are really nervous, kids are not articulate about what they're thinking. A lot of kids end up in the hospital. We don't know if that was a good decision or not. Maybe they should have gone home. Maybe it would have been better. Or the kids went home and it wasn't better and we're all feel terrible. So if you're a practitioner, you know, this is your license in the balance. So we have funded one study that looked at emergency care and this is the people who, you know, in addition to the ones saying, I attempted suicide, so you don't have to scream, they're telling you, you know, how else could we detect people who are at risk? So it turns out that people coming in for GI problems, a broken leg, 
have been thinking about suicide, and they can be detected just with a simple screen by asking them, and they'll tell you, <laughs> and you can treat them. So we didn't even think we could do research in emergency rooms like 10 years ago. People would say, oh, it's so chaotic, and you could never figure this out. Well, we did, and we figured out this is, these numbers are actually in line with those estimates that if we treated everybody who had some suicidal thinking or attempts, we could actually probably start lowering the suicide rate. We have people who've gone through the medical records now. I'm sure a number of you have had this opt-in, you know, you want to go on your patient portal, see what your data is. So we're trying to, you know, use all that information from medical records. Well, it's pretty amazing. You can look at the people who've been in a medical care system, see who died by suicide, go backwards, and figure out who, who were the at-risk people, and you can replicate the model. I mean, so the VA actually um, and this second example is going back now to find their veterans who they've missed. They have um, actually people hired to look at suicide risk in the VA. They, they flag people in their medical record if they think they're at risk. Half of the people in this model did not have that flag. So they're going back to say, what did we miss? Um, because I think somebody mentioned, you know, not everybody's going to tell you if they're suicidal. And if you think about if somebody had a plan, they don't want to be interrupted. <laughs> so there's a motivation not to tell you. Then we have another study with, um, <coughs> it's called the Mental Health Research Network, which is a lot of the Kaiser um, groups, um, about 11,000 11, patients, I think, in this study, where um, you might have had this experience where you always have to fill out a checklist. Maybe it's around alcohol use. That's called the audit screen. There's something called the patient health questionnaire. asks about depressive symptoms, anxious symptoms, and this is part of routine care in a lot of places. So people just went in the medical records to figure out who was at risk. And if you said not at all, your risk was still pretty low after a year. But if you said to this one item, I thought about suicide almost every day, your risk for suicide goes up. It's still 0.5%. But the fact that you could find people there, that's you know, in excess of maybe 60 suicides that could have been detected early, is another example of how the medical record could be used better. Um, from Scandinavia, they've had health registries for a long time because of socialized medicine. Everybody's in a health system, and they can link that to their vital statistics to the death records to see who had what kind of care. And that's where our numbers come from still in terms of who's had depression, is at risk for suicide, who's had schizophrenia. It's actually from the Scandinavian countries. But there was a, um, since 1992, Denmark said, if you've attempted suicide, we actually have special clinics for you. We've got people who understand this, we're going to help you. A lot of them had psychosocial interventions to help you problem solve and think about ways of not attempting again. So this wasn't a randomized controlled trial, it's just they just did it. So looking back at the people who, almost 6,000, who had some psychosocial therapy, they much less likely to reattempt. They, uh, they decreased the risk for suicide by 25% and 31% by other causes because we know people who are suicidal are probably not taking good care of themselves. So they're not dying by other causes of death. So that has led us to trying to improve the healthcare system. So getting back to somebody's question in the back. And there's an effort um, within the U.S. called Zero Suicide, which is saying this is like hand washing in some ways. Why should we have transfer of germs in healthcare settings when we know we could do better? We know a lot of people have accessed health care, maybe three to um, eight out of ten, depending on what kind of health care system you have and how you access it. So we know we should be doing better there. And there was a study from the United Kingdom where they started improving a number, about ten or eleven different areas where they knew things had gone bad. And those were actually from root cause analysis. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but in a medical setting or um, if something happens, there's supposed to be a review of what went wrong and joint commission that accredits medical institutions asks you to do this, you know, uh, require that type of process done. But everybody's supposed to learn from everybody else. In the UK, they actually have an inquiry. Somebody comes in, they talk to the family members. Everybody says, we should never let this happen again. How can we improve? So from those recommendations, they were able to reduce suicides linked to people in healthcare by 35%. So, you know, if you had a, a drug that did that, 
we'd all be, you know, trying to get stuck. <laughs> that looks really good. But it's a complicated thing because people are hitting the healthcare system in different places. Inpatient, emergency care, outpatient, substance abuse. And our healthcare system, you know, is quite segmented there, even though we're trying to get this integrated. So we're really excited about the people willing to think about how their system is treating people. And if you think about how we want people in the community to know there's a place to get help, we want to make sure the help's good because I'm concerned there's been a lot of, especially adolescents who've gotten into the healthcare system, were treated and said, I am never going back there again and I'm never going to tell anybody if I'm suicidal. That's not good. Um, and there's probably a lot of adults in that situation too. So that um, PHQ-9 graph I showed you where there was some elevated risk, if you identified that, there's a trial right in the healthcare system now where if you've got that, you get an, um, a text message or an email saying, we've noticed you've scored high in this. We actually have some resources to help you. And people are being randomized. 20,000 patients being randomized. So this is the biggest trial we've ever done around suicide. And it's in progress right now across Seattle, uh, I think Denver, Minneapolis. So we're really anxious to see how this works. And it's trying to find people who are just thinking about suicide. They haven't attempted. So we're trying to figure out how to help people earlier um, in the process. Okay, so the funding. Oh, I want to leave our time for questions. Uh, let me just say um, the funding is very low for the 10th lady cause of death. These are the funders. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, the Railroad Administration is very concerned about this. When people try to take their lives that way, if you can imagine what the engineers go through, seeing this coming, and they can't change their route. They're faced with this day after day. So they're very concerned about this. It might not be, we're not even sure how many suicides are specifically railroad. We have some general idea, but we're trying to get a better handle on that. Um, the National Science Foundation is interested in this from a very basic research in terms of um, anthropology. So anyway, I just want to show you. I don't know if Dr. Insull showed you this one already. So in terms of where we've made progress in other areas, you know, we've reduced it dramatically, but suicide is still there. We're not making the progress in terms of reducing mortality. And this is just my last slide. So Dr. Insull actually had this, our um, analysis branch do this exercise, where is funding for some of the mental health problems compared to all of NIH? It's all below the average. <laughs> and HIV is way up on top. It's had a separate funding line, and it's made a lot of success. So that's as far as I'm going to say about <laughs> funding, because I cannot advocate <laughs> for that. So open for questions. Yes. Ms. somebody talks about suicide, that must mean, you know, they're really not going to do it because they've told you, right? Most people who die by suicide have mentioned this. So you've got to take that seriously. And even if they weren't, didn't have a plan, they're obviously in distress bringing this up. It's very difficult with adolescents if you feel like they're being manipulative. But that's not a good thing either. So just try to get the help. So what if somebody says no, you know, or especially with kids, this is a secret, don't tell anybody, my parents are going to get really upset. Um, you know, and religion can come in here too, like bucket up, pray, it should, you know, just go away. You really want to work with your pediatrician if you can, if it's kids, who, who do they go to? Because in the long run, you're going to be probably managed with your pediatrician. What we're trying to do is help them find good resources because we know they'll use them if they know they're out there. If they're not connected to good resources, they don't even ask the question. Because if they ask the question and there's no place to refer, they're sitting with the person in the emergency room. There, there goes their whole day. So you know, it's it's a system that's not working very well. There's an 800 number that um, the Lifeline, which is on the sheet, which is very good, 
SAMHSA supports this and it links you to crisis centers across the country and they have access to mental health clinics. They can actually help you find a place right away. And states quite vary in terms of how much crisis care they have available. So in Maryland where I'm at, there's a, a number you can call and a crisis team will show up at your house if you're really worried. And then they'll take it from there and help you find space. And Georgia is another state like that that has a very good crisis system linked with law enforcement for you know, well checks as well as getting you help. How about in the situation where someone is in healthcare and is be prescribing, being prescribed medication, and you have knowledge and that this isn't working yeah. beyond what the practitioner may know about? Is it fair, or legitimate, to write a letter yeah. to a practitioner? I would say so. You're going to save a life. So this this is what kids face. You know, keep it a secret. And, you know, so some of the social messaging around is that it's more important to have your friend mad at you and alive than dead and you kept the secret. So it's very difficult um, to do this, but I think you've got to say, you know what, you're not getting optimal care if this is where you're at. And we don't have that demand side here like we might with other diseases at this point. And I always say to people, if, as soon as we get these studies done and we can show this is optimal care, you've got to go in there and demand it. My, my dad had a stroke right at the beginning of this. And he went into a stroke unit, and I got online, and I tried to figure out what is a stroke unit supposed to do. It's supposed to have a team meeting right away. The team meeting hadn't happened. I contacted the director of the unit. I said, when is the team meeting? Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you always have to be an advocate in healthcare. And in this situation, we want to find these, you know, best practices to make sure people are demanding that instead of hoping somebody's going to discover them or something's going to turn out okay. You know, I think it's like anything else in healthcare. Yes. Um, earlier slide said uh, one of the research areas is social. Yes. What does that mean? What are the components of that? They have to follow up after you. Okay. It's a pretty broad category, but I was mentioning, like, if you know somebody in your work site who died by suicide, how do you handle that socially? You know, it's a private issue, just like any death might be. But if you have other people thinking about that and wondering why would this happen, you should really have somebody coming in to talk to say, we're not, we might not ever know all the things that went into this, but if you're feeling like this, you should get help, um, not go along here, with it. Yep. The purpose of my question. Okay. I, people will remember I raised this a couple of weeks ago. Um, interventions and she just listed every reason people came up with for a living and that's really important for clinicians to understand if your religious beliefs prohibit you from taking your life that's a protective factor and we should bolster that so it's very important to ask those kind of questions and actually I was trying to get my mother enrolled in a consultation and they wanted to know her religion I was really surprised in terms of a whole new healthcare system that was very important to them to understand that so I would say that would be another question to make sure, you know, they're treating you as the whole person because this is sort of the ultimate <laughs> in that sense because you want to be a whole person living and that's part of the process. Another question back there. Um,
they just don't, they don't participate. And it's a very frustrating thing. So you're pretty much out of pocket unless you have some kind of, you know, other more systematic plan. Right. And so it, it's, I'm just, yeah. it's just a real big so crisis. Yeah. They all say it's because the paperwork is just too much right. for them to participate. So um, I know we're running out of time. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty active in my Lutheran congregation, and we actually have a list of providers where we know if they take insurance or not, and we try to keep it current because people are in this situation all the time, and to say to a family member, sorry, you're going to spend hours on the phone trying to figure this out, we try to streamline that a little bit, and that's one thing a community can do um, to have that available. That should be possibly a resource. Um, especially about mental health. I'm not saying you should list all the cardiologists here and all of the pulmonologists, but because mental health is so challenging, I think it's actually a very useful thing. And it's helpful for the clergy because they know they can go to that sooner than trying to do something where they might be getting out of their realm of expertise. Well, I got a list from our healthcare company and I started calling that list and no one on that list oh. took and that's so, so frustrating. Thank you all for all the work you're doing.